Well, you might notice in your bulletin you have notes, and we're going to follow those notes, don't worry, um, but uh, you might want to add to the top the title of the title, When Will the Kingdom Come? You might want to add part one. You might want to add part one. Uh, the reason is, as we, we've been going through Matthew, there's a lot going on. Let's just say that. There's a lot going on in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the book, the gospel of the kingdom. It's, it, Matthew is all about the kingdom. We've said that the purpose of Matthew, Matthew's writing to a Jewish Christian audience, and he's writing Matthew, and he's teaching and reinforcing to these Jewish Christians, yes, Jesus is the king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the one that under the Father's rule will rule over the entire world. And he's been teaching about the kingdom, the nature of that kingdom, that Old Testament kingdom that was prophesied and, and predicted. He's been teaching about that. And then Matthew has also been telling us how, how do you live in light of the kingdom? How do you live as a kingdom citizen? He's been saying all of that. And, and let's just remind us, uh, remember how Matthew is primarily structured. It alternates. It alternates between story, between narrative, and between teaching by Jesus, what we call discourses. So chapters 1 through 4 uh, really portrayed Jesus. They really portrayed his identity as that king, as the ultimate king of David, the, the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant, the one who will, under God, rule over all the world. And then we heard from the king himself in chapters 5 through 7, the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, that first long teaching section, the first discourse in Matthew where Jesus proclaims, here's what kingdom righteousness looks like. And then we went on in the story, we went on in the story, Jesus' the authority was demonstrated by his teaching, remember his ministry was characterized by preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, he was characterized by that, but he demonstrated his authority not only in his teaching, but in his miracles. We said the miracles, and you see these in chapters 8 and chapters 9, these miracles demonstrate, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, he is that king that has authority. And these miracles that he's doing, they display the, 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 the foretaste, the trailers, the teasers for the kingdom that he's going to bring as king. And then not only that, uh, he's coming to a point in chapter 10 with the second discourse, the second main teaching section that Jesus does in the book of Matthew. Remember, there's five. The second of five in chapter 10, we just went through, where Jesus is commissioning the 12 apostles to do what Jesus is doing. Remember, Jesus' work was to gather the scattered tribes of Israel. Remember that background of Ezekiel 34, where the Messiah is going to come, and he is going to come, and he's going to be the shepherd, just like David was the shepherd, but the ultimate shepherd. He's going to gather the scattered sheep from Israel. They were scattered because of the, the faults and the failures of their leaders. He's going to regather Israel as a nation, but He's in that work. John the Baptist was in that work, and then he commissions his 12, his 12 apostles to be part of that work. And we said, as we walked through chapter 10, there's principles and mission, not only for the 12 apostles, but for us. And so we went through all of that. And we just ended, ending in 11.1, really at the end of chapter 10, but 11.1 is kind of that transition back to narrative, back to the story. So we're now back into the story. 
But this section of narrative, the next discourse isn't until chapter 13 with all the parables. So this section of narrative runs from chapters 11 through 12, and it is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. It is critical that we understand what is happening in Matthew 11 through 12. And you might say, really? It it really doesn't feel that uh, as you walk through. It doesn't feel that critical. Well, it is. There is much at stake as we understand Matthew 11 through 12. Just to give you a, this is why we really added, I said today's going to be part one, because, because, Really what this is going to do in Matthew 11, 2 through 19, well, Matthew 11, 2 through 19 is a unit. It's a unit of thought. And I was hoping I could get through all of it in one go, but it's not going to happen. But what happens here is a turning point in our understanding of the kingdom and when the kingdom is going to come. Another way to say that is when we're talking about the coming of God's kingdom, the coming of God's rule and reign over the whole world under Christ, under Christ as his chosen king, that relates to what we call eschatology. Now, that's just a fancy word that just means, when, God, when is God going to wrap this business up? When is he going to bring the story to a conclusion? When is it going to happen that God's, when pure justice is going to reign? When are the new heavens and the new earth going to come? When is righteousness going to be over all the earth? All that has to do with eschatology. And Believe it or not, chapter 11 is a foundational turning point in our understanding of that. Now, you might say, ah, eschatology, end time stuff, that's not important. Oh, my friend, it is. It is, because if you understand the end of the story and what's supposed to happen, it changes how you live now. I mean, that's John and Jesus' point from the beginning, isn't it? Repent, change your allegiance from sin and self and entrust yourself to Christ as the king and follow him as the Lord of your life, the master of your life? Why? For the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And what that means and what it meant, and we'll talk about this as we go through that, That meant God is coming. It meant his judgment was coming, which changes your reality now. When we look to the end and we understand that the end is coming and we understand when it's going to come, what's the program, what's God's program in that it changes how we live now. Now, as we live now in the here and now, and we live in the culture that we live in, isn't it easy to be tempted to doubt that Jesus is actually king and that his kingdom is real and coming. Don't we face that and struggle with that? We see injustice and sin in the world, but not just out in the world, we see it in ourselves too. We see sin in ourselves, we see sin in the world, it's injustice after injustice, wickedness after wickedness, and we're wondering, is Jesus really king? Is he really going to come again? Is he going to really reign? And we especially feel that, and we especially are tempted because we live in the midst of a culture that thinks what we believe is ridiculous. To believe that Jesus actually is the God-man that will reign over the whole world from a throne in Jerusalem, well, that just sounds ridiculous. 
That just sounds ridiculous. Jesus sounds ridiculous. I mean, yeah, we can have Jesus as a nice teacher, but we can't have him as king and Lord and who's going to reign and judge with a rod of iron over the whole world. That just sounds ridiculous. And so we're tempted as we feel the pressure from our culture, what you guys believe is ridiculous about Jesus being king and about his kingdom, we're tempted to doubt. And the same thing would have been true, a different culture in a different cultural context, but it would have been similar to Matthew's Jewish Christian audience. You see, he's writing to Jewish Christians, and they're living in the midst of a Jewish culture who has, by and large, rejected Jesus as king and rejected that, well, yeah, the kingdom's going to come, but it's not going to come through Jesus. It didn't come near through Jesus. And so his audience, Matthew's audience, would have felt that pressure from their Jewish neighbors and kin who hadn't accepted Jesus. They would have said, what you guys believe is ridiculous. Jesus isn't the Messiah. He was crucified. What you believe is ridiculous. His kingdom didn't come near. We're still waiting for that. It's in the future. That's what they would have said. So there's a similarity there. And actually, what we see in Matthew 11, and even in connection with John the Baptist, it, it teaches to that reality. It teaches how do you fight that kind of temptation to doubt. So like I said, 11, 2 through 19 is a unit, but it's going to take us a couple weeks to get through it. And really, as we enter this, instead of, uh, we're, we're, we're going to answer questions. We're going to answer questions, because the way it's structured is with three questions. Uh, the first coming from verses 2 through 6, is Jesus the one coming? Second question in 7 through 15, what did the crowds go out into the wilderness to see, in reference to John the Baptist? And the third question in verses 16 through 19, what was Jesus and John's generation like? And you will notice in each of those three sections, there's a question that's asked. So our big question, if we were to have a big question as we come into this section is this, who are Jesus and John, John the Baptist, who are Jesus and John the Baptist? When will the kingdom come? And how does their generation, John and Jesus' generation, affect this? That's the big question we're going to be working through and answering through this section. Who are Jesus and John? When will the kingdom come? And how does their, meaning John and Jesus' generation, affect this? And actually, it's a fairly complicated, what's going on here, and you're going to see it, especially depending on how far we get today, but probably more especially next week, it gets complicated fairly quickly. In fact, you will notice what Jesus says in verse 15. After the most complicated section, he says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning what? Pay very, very close attention to what I just told you uh, because it's fairly complicated. And if you give it a surface reading, you're going to miss stuff. And so that's why I'm going to try my best to lay out the complexities and walk us through them, because once you understand what Jesus is saying in this passage, it is absolutely profound. It is absolutely profound and helps us even as we live today and look forward to the coming of the kingdom. But let's start with the first question that gets answered in this section. Let's start in verses 2 through 6. And the main question in this section is this, is Jesus the one coming? Is Jesus the one coming. Look at verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples. Now, let's envision the picture. Uh, back in chapter 4, verse 12, John got arrested. He was arrested by Herod Antipas. We're not going to find out the full reasons for that until chapter 14. But he got arrested by Herod Antipas, who uh, had jurisdiction over the region of uh, Galilee and a couple other regions. But John got arrested by Herod Antipas. So he's in prison. Uh, best estimates are he's probably in prison for about a year. So by the time, from the time he gets arrested to the time he gets executed, spoiler alert, sorry, um, he, he is he's in prison probably about a year-ish, okay? Now, remember what happened in chapter 4, verse 12. He got arrested, and immediately Jesus starts his ministry. It was a trigger for Jesus to withdraw to Galilee, which is where Jesus is, uh, to start his ministry. So he's in prison, what has happened, and basically, he's in the same shoes as the reader, because from chapter 4 through chapter 10, all of the things that have happened, he has heard about through, by means of his disciples. Evidently, his disciples have access to them in the prison, they're caring for him, and they're telling him, hey, this is what Jesus did, this is what Jesus taught. And so all that we've heard about in chapters 4 through uh, 10 uh, John knows about. He knows about the Sermon on the Mount. He knows about Jesus' teaching. He also knows about the miracles he's been doing. He hears about the deeds of the Christ. The deeds of the Christ aren't just his miracles, it's also his teaching, because Jesus' ministry is a word-based ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's the central core message that John spoke, Jesus spoke, and then he's backing it up with what we saw in chapters 8 through 9 of all of his miracles. And John knows about it and hears about it. But notice what he does. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, so the vehicles, the disciples, John speaking to Jesus through his disciples, said to him, are you the one who is to come? Now, what does that mean, that language? Are you the one who is to come? Um, that's a language, kind of veiled language for the Messiah. Uh, turn back to John, uh, not John, uh, Matthew 3. Turn back to Matthew 3 and remember, and remember John's ministry. Remember John's ministry. I'm going to read uh, Matthew 3, 1 through 12, because that encapsulates John's ministry, and you're going to see his attitude, and that helps form some of the backdrop of what's going on in chapter 11. Uh, Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, meaning he looks a lot like Elijah. That's what Elijah looked like. That's what John looks like. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, there, there you see it, see that language? But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So what's going on here? John, and we talked about this when we went through John's ministry, John is expecting what we call the day of the Lord. If you've read the scriptures for any length of time, you know that theme pops up in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the day of the Lord is God's ultimate day of judgment and salvation. It's the day where he is going to judge and execute judgment against wickedness in his kingdom. But it's also the day where he's going to save his people out of his judgment. And we've been talking about that as we've walked through Matthew. So that's what John is expecting. He's expecting, because of the Old Testament, the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king, who's God and man, is going to come and he's going to execute God's judgment. You just saw it there in the last few verses. He's going to come after me, the Messiah is, and he's going to judge. He's going to give the Holy Spirit to his people, and that's, that's, that's part of that salvation package and he's going to judge the evildoers. And he's expecting the day of the Lord. Now, if we understand that, and we understand uh, then why, at least in an initial way, why he's asking this question, he's like, are you the one to come, back in Matthew 11, talking about Jesus, or are we to wait for another? Are we to look for another? Are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Or are we to look for another? Now, John obviously believes that Jesus is at least a prophet because he's at least asking him, yeah, we see that you're aligned with God, just like I am, but, some, but the things you're doing are unexpected. They're unexpected, which is why he's asking this question, are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Or are you just another forerunner like me? And are we still waiting for the Messiah? That's what he's asking, and he's trying to get an answer. Now, we need to think about this a little bit. Why would John doubt that Jesus was the Messiah? Especially since he has heard all that what John has done. That's what it starts with, right? He hears about in prison all that Jesus is doing. And John doubts. He doubts. Is he really the Messiah? Why? Because Jesus is like, doing all these amazing miracles, why would John doubt? Well, because what's missing, if you read Matthew 4 through 10, what's missing is judgment. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought we've been talking about judgment a lot. Well, we have been, but you will notice in chapters 4 through 10 that Jesus talks about God's judgment. He says it's going to happen He says you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. He says you need to repent so that you don't face God's judgment. Even in chapter 10, he said it'll be more bearable for those who reject your message, the message of the 12, and by extension, the message of his disciples. If they reject that message, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for those cities than for, uh, for, for the Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities. He said of it, he's talked about judgment, but he has not executed judgment. Have you noticed that? Jesus has not executed judgment at all. 
In fact, just the reverse. Uh, what we see, what we see throughout, yes, he condemns the scribes and the Pharisees who are becoming increasingly his opponents, but he has not executed judgment at all. The day of the Lord, which John was expecting, what Jesus is expecting, as we'll see, is both salvation and judgment. It's both of those things. And we'll see that even in some of the Old Testament passages that we're going to look back at. And what Jesus is bringing is a lot of the salvation side of things, calling sinners to himself. Uh, I mean, he, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. These are sinners. He doesn't leave them there. He calls them to repentance. But He's not executing judgment. In fact, he's demonstrating, here's what salvation looks like. Here's what God's favor looks like. And John's a little bit confused because he's like, wait a minute, the guy that was coming after me, he's supposed to bring salvation, yes, but he's also supposed to bring judgment. Where's the judgment? And here's the thing, God's judgment is, should be a comforting thing for God's people because it vindicates God's people. It vindicates their beliefs. Think about where John is. John has been arrested for preaching the kingdom. He's sitting and moldering in a jail cell. And why would he want judgment to come? Because if Jesus, the Messiah, judges this false king, Herod Antipas, then I'm going to be released from prison. If, if Jesus, if the Messiah, if Jesus was the Messiah, he would judge Herod, this wicked king, and I would be able to take my place in the kingdom and would be freed from prison. So John is hearing about a lot of good things, but he's also not hearing the judgment piece. And that's what drives him to his question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answers, verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John, what you hear and see, which again, that just kind of incorporates all of what we've heard. Hearing, we need to hear Jesus' message. He has a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. He's preached, he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taught to his disciples in Matthew 10, but uh, there's also a lot of seeing. There's also a lot of his miracles that he's been doing. Go tell John what you hear and see, and then he gives a list. Then he gives a list. The blind receive their sight. We've seen Jesus heal blind people. And the lame walk. We've seen him heal a paralytic and forgive his sins. Lepers are cleansed. Remember, lepers, uh, leprosy, the big deal there was not just a physical condition, but you couldn't draw near to the temple. You're unclean, and so you can't draw near to the temple. We saw Jesus cleanse a leper. And the deaf here, we've seen him open the ears of a deaf man. And the dead are raised, the little girl who died, and he brought to life again. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news, that's the gospel, preached to them. Jesus is preaching to the low and the outcasts in society. That's how he answers. Now you might say, well, that's, he didn't answer his question. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did, because what Jesus is doing with that laundry list there is he is quoting Old Testament passages. Surprise, surprise, right? That He does this all the time. Um, 
And if you understand what's going on in the Old Testament passages that he's quoting, Jesus' answer is loud and clear. So let me take you to those. Let's go ahead and go to the book of Isaiah. We've been in a lot in Isaiah. Isaiah is written about um, 700-ish B.C., so about 700 years before Christ, and it's before God's people of Judah, Isaiah is written to the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, before they go into Babylonian exile. It's about 100 years or so before they go into Babylonian exile. And God is calling uh, the, the people at that time, they're corrupt. Uh, they, they do all the external forms of worship, but they don't have a heart for God. And so Isaiah is addressing them. And essentially what happens in Isaiah is God says, yeah, you're going to go into exile, but there's also a promise of deliverance on the other side of exile. Um, and what you also see in Isaiah is this idea of, you remember the first exodus when I delivered you, Israel, from the land of Egypt, and I brought you into the land of Israel, and I gathered you? Well, now I'm going to scatter you and exile again, but I'm also going to bring about a second exodus where I'm going to regather you from where you were scattered in exile, and I'm going to reestablish the nation. I'm going to bring you back. And in that context, we read in Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35, you're going to hear some of that second Exodus language, but it's also in this context of the day of the Lord. Isaiah 35, we'll just start in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Now, let me just pause there. Do you see it? You see the day of the Lord right there where God's going to come, and he's going to come bringing vengeance, judgment, and also salvation. There's our day of the Lord language. So that's what he's talking about in Isaiah 35. Let's continue. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way." Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That is the ultimate salvation that God is bringing. He comes, the day of the Lord is judgment, to God's enemies, to those who will not repent, and it is salvation and joy for those who will. 
You see it, right? God is gathering his people and he's restoring even the effects of sin, things like blindness and lameness, the things that Jesus was talking about when he talked to John. But we can see it even more in Isaiah. Turn a couple pages over to Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 40 through really the end of the book, uh, we get more dimensions of this restoration that, that God is going to bring, but he's going to bring it through the Messiah, but this time he calls Isaiah the servant. Uh, he turns into the suffering servant, the one who's going to die in place of his people for their sins. He's also the Davidic king who will reign over his people. But in the midst of that, in the start of that, in Isaiah 42, we see God start to address the servant. And notice what he says in Isaiah 42, verse 6. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am Yahweh. I have called you, and that you there is the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then again in Isaiah 61, because all of these things is what Jesus is alluding to when he's talking to John. You see a similar language, Isaiah 61. We've already talked about Isaiah 61 a little bit in the context of Matthew. But notice Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. Now the servant is speaking. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And notice this, verse 3, or verse 2, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. There's the day of the Lord again, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. You see it? It's all the same picture approached from other angles. What's God going to do? God's going to come to save, to express his favor and his judgment, and he's going to do it through his servant, the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, the Christ, and he's described how the Messiah is going to act. And so then we flip back to Matthew 11, and let's read that laundry list again. Verse 4. Matthew 11. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, see that language, good news preached to them? We just read about that in Isaiah 61. Do you remember what came next? The poor have good news preached to them. In Isaiah 61, the very next phrase is, uh, those who are bound, they're going to be put at liberty. Now that's what John wants, isn't it? <laughs> 
John wants to be put at liberty. He wants that release from the captives. He wants to be put out of prison. But notice what Jesus says instead of that. Notice what he says instead of that. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So let's think through what Jesus is saying. There are some who say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, Yeah, he did. He just did. He just said, you know, if, if, you're, if you're just listening in, right, and he, he didn't explicitly say it, but he quoted verses that proved it. He said, I'm the guy, I'm the, I'm the servant, I'm the guy that Isaiah is talking about. And you can see it because of all that I've done. Jesus has fulfilled all of those prophecies 700 years before he walked the earth because he's God. And he has done all of those things, and he's showing, I am bringing the day of Yahweh. I am bringing the day of the Lord. I've done all those things. John, look at what I've done. Look at what I'm doing. It matches up with what Isaiah said. I'm here. But notice also what he says. Verse 6, like we just said, John wants to be, yeah, great. Well, the Messiah is supposed to let people out of prison. He's supposed to uh, judge the wicked people so that those who are wrongly imprisoned can be brought out, like John. And Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Literally, it's the idea, uh, blessed is the one who, uh, who, uh, whoever it does, is not caused to stumble by me. Not caused to stumble by me. How is John caused to stumble? Well, John, what is John doing? John is saying, yeah, you kind of look like the Messiah, and I know you're at least a prophet, but boy, it would be sure nice if you could bring the kingdom now, because I thought that's what you were going to do, and it would sure be nice if you could rescue me from prison. What is John's focus? John's focus has shifted ever so slightly from who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing to I want the kingdom to come according to my timetable. I want things to happen my way. This is what I was expecting. This is what I, I thought it was going to look a certain way, and it's not looking a certain way. And Jesus is very gently reminding John and warning him, right? He's warning him, saying, blessed is the one. Uh, that's that, the same language we saw in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Happy, flourishing is the one who, whoever is not caused to stumble by me. Meaning, John, you're getting close to stumbling. And the stumbling here is that stumbling can range from, okay, I stumbled into sin to all the way to apostasy, renunciation, renunciation of Christ. And he's gently warning John. He's saying, John, you're getting, you're getting dangerously close here. You're, you're about to stumble, so don't stumble. But what does he do to help him? Jesus helps him he doesn't just warn him, but he, he woos him as well. He, he says, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. Look at my deeds. Look at who I am. Look at my character. It matches with what Isaiah said. Yes, I am the coming one. Yes, I am the Messiah. Jesus has claims that. And he's saying, don't, don't. He's trying to shift his focus. It's not about your timing. It's not about what you expected, John. It's about me. It's about me. It's about Christ. And that brings us back to kind of where we started in the introduction. We're tempted to doubt Jesus like John, aren't we? Aren't we tempted? We feel that pressure from, from our culture. You believe Jesus is king? You believe he's going to bring this kingdom? That's ridiculous. 
And we were wondering, like, when are you going to come, Jesus? Are you going to come soon? I mean, it's pretty wicked out there. It's pretty bad. It would be great if you would come right now. And what are we looking at? We're looking at, I want things according to my timetable. I want things according to my plan. Because it would sure be nice for me if this would happen this way. And what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And, and some of these things aren't bad, right? It's not wrong. It is not at all wrong to want God's judgment and justice to come. It's not wrong to want to be vindicated for the beliefs that we've placed. We bet everything on Jesus Christ. And it's not wrong to want to be vindicated in that. But we don't get to control the timing or the way it looks. And so what do we do? Well, we do the exact same thing. And, and think about how this was for Matthew's audience, right? The, John's question, John the Baptist's question, was the same question that Matthew's Jewish audience was asking, wasn't it? Our neighbors and our friends and our family are saying, they're saying we're ridiculous for believing in a crucified Messiah. They're saying we're ridiculous for believing that he's going to bring the kingdom. And so how does Matthew through the words of Jesus, help his audience, he points them to what Christ, who Christ is and what he did. He points them to who Christ is and what he did. When you struggle with doubt, and let's be honest, we do at times, it's, it's not wrong to struggle or be tempted with doubts. It is wrong to remain there. But the question is, how do you fight such temptations? How do you fight the temptation to doubt Jesus and his kingdom? You fight like this. What did Jesus do? That's why the Gospels, we have the Gospels. We have multiple eyewitness testimony by the people who knew Jesus best, by the people who were there. And they wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so that we can see what did Jesus do? Who was Jesus? We, our faith is not in an idea. Our faith is in a person, a person who lived, who is objective, who is out, totally outside of us. If I, uh, no matter what I do, Jesus lived and he did what he did. And that's how we fight the whispers of doubt. That's how we fight the whispers of doubt is we see, what did Jesus do? He caused the blind to see again. He raised the dead. He cleansed lepers. We see his, it's not only the acts themselves, all right? They point that he is the Messiah that was prophesied, but it's also his character. We see Jesus' tenderness and his toughness. Jesus doesn't fit into a box. We were talking about that before, right? That we like nice Jesus, but what about what about when he, he's going to say the same things that John said, you brood of vipers. You look at Matthew 23, and he lays it, he lays into the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not nice, not nice. But that's who Jesus is. He's both tender and tough. He is compassionate and gracious, but he's also going to bring God's judgment because he's the king, because he's God incarnate. And so when we doubt when we're tempted to doubt, we look to Jesus, and we look to how the Gospels portray Jesus. We don't look to our culture's representation of Jesus. Oh, he's a nice guy. He's a nice teacher. No, you can't read the Gospels 
and believe what people say about Jesus because he doesn't fit a category because he is God incarnate. He is the eternal son of God who became flesh to save man from their sin. And make no mistake, we are all sinners. We all deserve God's wrath. And he came to save. He came to give God's favor. And it isn't a blessing. He didn't come to bring and enact God's judgment right away because we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't exist. But Jesus came to bring salvation through going to the cross, through dying in place of his people, those who would entrust themselves to him, those who would repent and turn their allegiance from sin and self, those who would fully entrust themselves to Christ, those who would follow him as his disciples for their whole life. He died for those people and for none others to love them, to draw him. And so when we doubt, when we're tempted to doubt, we look back, who is Jesus? What did he do? Because that's outside of me. It's not part of me. It's not based on how I feel. It's an objective historical fact that fulfills prophecy, and that's what Jesus pointed John to. That's what Matthew was pointing his audience to. Now, maybe you're here, and maybe you're, maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're a skeptic, or maybe you're antagonistic uh, about Jesus as Messiah and King. I've had, I've had people I've talked to, and, you know, we could argue all day long about this thing and that thing, uh, about the, what the Bible says, but at a certain point, I want to draw people back to, yeah, but look at the Gospels. What do you do with this person? What do you do with Jesus of Nazareth? What do you do with him? So maybe you're skeptical, or maybe you're antagonistic about Jesus as Messiah and King. Look at who he is and his deeds. And if you understand them rightly, then you understand that we all, all, every single human being are under God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath because sin is not just doing naughty things. It is a slap in the face to the God of the universe. It is a personal offense against an infinitely holy God. We deserve his infinite judgment in hell, which Jesus affirms, but he calls us repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Turn your allegiance from sin and self and trust yourself to me as the perfect one, as the one who not only was man but God, who lived a perfect, lived in flesh, human righteousness that you and I couldn't live, that accounted that perfect righteousness to those who would entrust themselves to him. And that only the person who repents and entrusts themselves to Christ like that and follows him in allegiance with their whole life as a disciple will be saved from the day of God's wrath. The day of the Lord is still coming. The day of the Lord is still coming. God will show up on this earth. And it is either, it is the day of salvation for his people, for those who have repented and entrusted themselves to Christ. Because Christ didn't stay dead. He rose again and showed and ascended on high. And he said, I'm coming again. The day of the Lord is a day of salvation for his people, but a day of wrath and terror for those who will not surrender and accept his terms. So if you're here today and you're skeptical or you're antagonistic, we've told you the truth. Please see who Christ is and repent and entrust yourself to Christ. Now the question is, okay, that's the first question. Is Jesus the one coming? Absolutely. Jesus is the one coming. He, he said that. He said that to John. He says that to us all. But then the next question is, well, who's John, and when is the kingdom coming? And that's what we're going to answer next week. 
So, we'll put you on a cliffhanger there, but see Christ. Christ is lovely and beautiful. Christ is the gospel. He is the good of the good news. Come and embrace him. See him in the gospels, and yes, say, yes, I want to follow him. It'll cost you everything, but you will gain everything. Let's pray. Jesus, you are lovely and amazing and terrifying and good and wrathful all at the same time. You are who you are. You don't depend upon us for who you are. And Lord Jesus, thank you. Son of God, thank you for becoming a man and for showing God's favor and grace and kindness. Thank you for being patient with our doubts and our struggles. We are weak people. Help us when we struggle with doubt, like John, to look to you, to look at the Gospels. Give us eyes to see you. Lord, we're blind naturally, and we can't cause ourselves to see. We need you, the Spirit, to we need the Spirit to awaken us, to open our eyes, to see the glory of Christ. And that is a miracle. I pray that you would remind us again and again as believers, but if there are any here who do not know you, who have their eyes blinded, I pray that you would open their eyes to see you from the first time, that you would grant them true repentance and faith. Lord Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise your name. We thank you that you are the coming one. You were the coming one, and you were there in the first century, and you are the coming one. You will come again, and we trust in that. We long for that, and we pray that you would do it in your timing and in your way, not in our timing and our way. We pray these things and ask them in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.